0: my name is dario hasenstab i have two degrees in international affairs and i'm here with balder hagritz a former university professor of mine as well as an ir consultant and together we're bursting the western bubble today We will analyze uh, the reporting on the war in Iraq through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Now that we are in August, Um, We're continuing with our um, summer episodes to kind of bring you a different vibe to the beach, mountains or wherever you're listening to this episode. Um, In the next three episodes, we will highlight some developments that show the already existing process of the bursting of the Western bubble. Um, Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic for our summer episode? Um, Why are we speaking about this particular press team covering the Iraq war?
1: Hello, Dario. Directly, the reason is that there was an article written uh, in March of this year by a U.S. reporter who actually went in the other direction. We know that during the war on terror from 2001 onwards, and specifically with respect to the war in Iraq, there was a tendency for Western media, certainly U.S. media, to be too comfortable in reporting official discourse official statements by the united states government by the pentagon in favor of invading iraq and there was not enough critical perspectives critical analysis critical journalism looking at the underlying dynamics and there were fortunately a few um, journalists who ducked that trend who actually did critically report on the United States government and their approach to Iraq and um, this article was written by one of those people and that is a good text to analyze to see what the media has to be careful of in these situations.
0: So the text uh, that we're talking about is titled Why the Press Failed on Iraq and it was published in Foreign Affairs magazine by John Walcott uh, on March 19th of this year. And in this article, John Walcott writes about his time at Night Ridder, a former U.S. media outlet, and their coverage of the build-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, in this piece, he criticizes uh, his well colleagues from other outlets, which sometimes blindly published stories given to them by officials high up in the chain, pushing for war with Iraq despite a lack of clear evidence of Iraq's involvement in the 9-11 attacks. Um, furthermore, Walcott writes about, you know, the fact that basic rules of journalism could have prevented outlets um, such as the New York Times from supporting the Bush administration's agenda on removing Iraq's uh, leader Saddam Hussein, something that the New York Times actually then later apologized for, uh, for their coverage um, on, well, on the up to, to the war in Iraq.
1: Which, which we discussed in another episode a little bit already, and uh, the media episode, I believe this was, and... The problem with that was that the apology was too little too late to three years later when the whole country is fed up with the consequences of the war in Iraq to then publish an article saying, hey, we got it wrong. Well, yeah, but you as a journalist, you as a media outlet are supposed to actually report while it's happening. You're supposed to be the ones critically assessing whether the government is abusing their power or not. And an apology later is fine. It's just a little bit useless, right? So in that sense, it's much more interesting to see how these things happened. How come that the United States media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, were so comfortable in playing their part in creating these phony narratives justifying a horrendous war um, and try to implement that for the future to make sure that it doesn't happen again. and, and in the, as such, this article written by Walcott is, is very useful and very timely because you can see now in the in 2023 that that these same destructive dynamics in the media are still occurring, that the lessons haven't really been learned despite official apologies by the New York Times and others.
0: And we have discussed these destructive dynamics before uh, in season one in our episode on the media in general, um, which I encourage all the listeners uh, to listen to if you haven't already. And it's really interesting to see how the dynamics we discussed back then are one hundred percent applying to Walcott's colleagues um, in this case in this case study of of the invasion of Iraq. You know, something like. Being like journalists being too close to politicians or to officials, having a close to, too close uh, relationship because that maybe will enable or ensure that they will receive bits and pieces of information that they can then publish. Um, but, you know, politicians knowing this and playing the game, knowing that if they feed this one journalist a certain piece of information, that they will also run the story in, you know, a, a positive way for them.
1: And it's, it's a comp- complex world, right? Being a journalist is not easy. Um, so in a, in an ideal theoretical scenario, which will never be possible in the real world, journalists are pure critical hawks of government policy. They critically assess government policy. They try to uncover, abuse, corruption. And they do not play any governmental game. They They are a watchdog for the country to make sure that the government doesn't overreach and uh, that's the that's the ideal scenario by the way on the side note that also means that they should be much more worried about the government rather than the opposition because you see nowadays that there's a little bit of a tendency by journalists to treat both political sides equally democrats versus republicans left versus right whatever But that's not what they're supposed to do. The the, the opposition is much less interesting than the government. It's about the government, whoever is in government, being critically assessed. And you see now with Biden, for example, that the US media is much more comfortable with the Biden administration than the Trump administration before. And as a result, they give the Biden administration much easier time. Well, that's not what you want. You want them to go after the Biden administration, because that's what journalists are supposed to do now. Um... That ideal scenario is never going to happen anyway because journalists have a complex reality to deal with. First of all, they're also human beings. So when 9-11 happens, they are part of the patriotic wave that hits the United States, right? Uh, When COVID happens, they're part of the fearful masses that are scared that they or their parents or their grandparents are going to die. Uh, They are human beings. They are not rational robots that just calculate everything. They're part of these sweeping societal movements. And it's quite difficult for journalists to step out of that and say, I'm not going to support my country fighting Saddam Hussein. I'm going to critically assess my country. That's that's very tricky. And then there is the issue uh, that if you as a journalist want to report on the government, you need to have some kind of access to the government. And... If you are seen as just someone who rants about the government and and works to expose weaknesses and abuse and corruption within the government, the government is not going to give you any access. You still need those interviews. You still need to be able to get close to civil servants. You still need to have politicians who off the record tell you things. And that is very, very difficult if you're just seen as a critical um, opposition to government power. And this was one of
0: very interesting things from this article where Walker describes that um, especially the, the you know the, the team around him so the Washington uh, team of of the Night Rider um, that they didn't necessarily see themselves as part of the Washington elite and that they didn't necessarily want to become kind of part of that group and I, there's, there's a lovely lovely quote uh, in the right about, right about the middle of the article where uh, he says and I quote, I was spending uh, meeting uh, meeting time, uh, kind of still meeting unnamed sources in the paint aisles of the Lowy store and the Cracker Barrel out in Manassas, Virginia, rather than at embassy parties in Washington, end quote. So, you know, I mean, because exactly those high-ranking officials, you will meet them at an embassy party in Washington, and they will feed you their story. However, those lower-ranking officials, let's say an intelligence officer who's seriously doubting the spin and the story that the well the higher up-ranking officials are creating yeah, exactly you will not meet them at these parties and watching but you will meet them by being that local journalist who really gets his hand dirty in that sense
1: and you don't have the psychological and sociological problem with them that that you would have with more high ranking ones so if you if you get your information from high ranking ones there is a give and take between you and them you're dependent on them and they're dependent on you in some ways and so your your dynamic as a journalist is very different with them, um, whereas low-ranking ones probably just do it out of a real personal concern that they talk to you. They don't want anything from you except for you to publish or to report their truth the way they understand the truth to be, right? Whereas the high-ranking ones have a political agenda, and if you don't form part of that agenda, you're going to be ousted from the circle. And I can't emphasize enough. I've I've never been really part of it myself because as an outside consultant and analyst, you know, I've never really been part of those circles, but I've seen it from up close how powerful the idea is of being part of the in crowd, as a journalist to be included in the dinners with the president or with the prime minister or with high ranking officials and how good that makes you feel. And also how much it helps your career, because if you can quote these people, your editor is going to be very happy with you. So you very easily turn into that inner circle. And once you're part of that inner circle, you can no longer fulfill your journalistic duty. And so it's a very, very difficult balance to find between, yes, still have access, still not be seen as the enemy, but not be too comfortable with them in a way that you can no longer think for yourself and uh, analyze uh, the situation as a true journalist, rather than someone who's part of the elite.
0: And he's he's saying exactly this in in the article as well. Um, and I quote, "Our reporting might have been getting under official skin, but it did not slow the administration's march to war." End quote. Which I mean, that's unfortunate that you know there's there's a journalist telling the truth and then the officials just uh, ignore it. But you have to be willing to be unpopular among these officials. Um, and this even makes you unpopular within your own uh, media outlet sometimes. So the way I understand is that Knight Ritter is that this was an overall media outlet, um, basically representing a bunch of different uh, local newspapers, and that the Washington Bureau would then basically uh, create a story and then uh, the local papers could choose to run with it, which um, during that time apparently um, a few a few times actually didn't happen, where some of the editors of local papers they decided to not run with that critical story on Washington is, is being evil and that they're planning a war against Iraq as a response to 9-11, despite it not making sense. And they actually chose to run with the stories of the Times or the Washington Post instead.
1: Be, because that is the safe thing to do institutionally, right? It is it is very dangerous to go against the grain, to go against the, the, the elite powers that be, uh, because there might be consequences. There, there, there might even be uh, very direct consequences, such as lawsuits. But there could be more subtle consequences of people no longer inviting you to dinner, um, people not offering you contracts, uh, advertisers moving away from you. There are very, very serious consequences to be a critical journalist or to be a critical editor. And editors have to report to their bosses. Their bosses are c- quite likely close to high-ranking people in Washington, and there again, you get that very, very dodgy, difficult circle to break through, or, or in general, also your audience. I mean, so when we talk about local
0: papers, uh, let's let's say there's a local paper somewhere in Iowa, um, where where the sentiment towards the Bush administration after the nine eleven attacks, you know, us versus them, might be very much like, yes, let's get those those damn terrorists, um, with people who are not necessarily capable of having that IR analysis that's required to, to understand this. And then you, I mean, and then if then one of your local paper says, oh, well, you know, Bush is, Bush is going to the wrong country. I'm not sure how well that's going to go over with your, with your local audience.
1: Indeed, and so here you've got your audience, you've got your own editor and your own publisher, and you've got the powers that be in Washington and elsewhere, all pushing you towards being very careful in criticizing your own country. On the other hand, it's really, really easy and basically free. Nobody cares if you're wrong, to um, publish some story about Saddam Hussein being evil or weapons of mass destruction existing in Iraq. If you're wrong, everyone will have forgotten. If you're right, you will have just been part of the patriotic fervor that is gripping the country and everyone is happy with you. So basically the cost-benefit analysis of critically going after your own government is very different from the cost-benefit analysis of critically going after a foreign dictator. And the consequence, we can't forget about the consequence of that. The consequence is that you had a media establishment with only very few exceptions. One of those exceptions being the people written about in this article. Uh, You've got a media establishment that became a party in a completely phony justification for war. The Bush administration, as the article also says, decided already in 2001, we want to make Iraq part of this. They wanted to go after Saddam Hussein, not because he had anything to do with 9-11, but because of other reasons that we discussed in other episodes. Um, And from that moment on, they needed the media to basically soften the ground, to let the American people know that this was the right thing to do. If the media had taken a different approach, if the media in general had been critical, it would have been much less likely that the United States would have gone to war in Iraq. And as a result, the United States and its people right now in twenty twenty three would be way better off, and um, because the war weakened the United States, not mentioning the horrible destruction that it caused in Iraq and the Middle East, of course. See, part
0: of that cost benefit uh, analysis of of the journalist in that moment, whether to run with that with that story or not, um, I I like the the way that Walcott, so John Walcott, he justified. Or basically, yeah, to his own team of why they're running with the critical story. And I quote, we report for the people whose sons and daughters and husbands and wives get sent to war, not for the people who sent them, end quote. And I think that's that's good, right? You want to have your journalist removed from the people in power and actually report, you know, being that fourth estate and actually holding those officials accountable and reporting for the people who are being sent to war.
1: This is so important to realize, and, and and unfortunately not enough people do so. It is incredibly patriotic. It's incredibly supportive of your country to critically assess your government. Not to create conspiracy theories or anything like that, but to criti- criticize your own country, your own government, is the most patriotic thing that you can do. It's unfortunately our human... Psychological fragility leads us to think that it's more patriotic to criticize Saddam Hussein or to criticize Gaddafi or to criticize Xi Jinping in China or Vladimir Putin in Moscow, because that fulfills this, if you like, Western bubble narrative of we are the good guys, they're the bad guys. But that doesn't help your country. That doesn't strengthen your country. What strengthens your country, what makes the United States better and stronger and more successful is not going after those foreign dictators, it is going after your own government and making sure that your own government stays honest, that your own government plays within the rules that you as a society have set up.
0: Um, you already mentioned uh, the fact that I mean this was obviously incredibly damaging in 2003 um, for, the, for the United States, more so for the people in Iraq. Um, and then how because there was no process of the country going through this realization, we messed up here. I mean, we, we mentioned the New York Times uh, kind of published uh, an, an apology letter uh, somewhere very, you know, on the on the later pages in, the, in their own newspaper. Um, but it, it happened again, as you said. And uh, interestingly, uh, Walcott, uh, so the author of this article... Uh, He he basically uh, saw the same dynamics happening with the United States withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan in in August of 2021. When he was writing an article um, two months before the withdrawal saying that, hello, um, this might be really difficult if we withdraw this quickly because there's still a lot of Afghans who have helped us and are now at the threat of basically the Taliban taking revenge. Um, we do not yet have the capacities, we do not yet have the processes to take these Afghans into the United States. And if we withdraw very quickly, um, we might see a quick humanitarian political disaster because the Afghan government is not as strong as we think it is. So you have the same criticism there, however, the system didn't learn from it. Um, and then, I mean, we, I'm pretty sure that the images of that uh, withdrawal in Afghanistan are still very present within within our our listeners' minds.
1: And And it's very unfortunately understandable and clear to see why this keeps on happening over and over and over again and essentially if you really want to fulfill your journalistic duty you're going to do things that are likely that are going to get you fired you're going to be unpopular you're not going to go high in the you know with respect to promotion career-wise it is not a rewarding process to do your journalistic duty. It is much more rewarding to play the game and uh, satisfy the powers above you, as well as, as you rightly pointed out, your readers who want to hear the good news about your about your country, who, who want to have the superficial kind of analysis and who don't appreciate their country being criticized. And, and so it's very difficult to see drastic, drastic changes because these are such powerful forces. And yet we still rely on those few journalists that actually go in the other direction, right? And we should celebrate those journalists, uh, those journalists that don't get to be senior editor of the New York Times, because once you become senior editor of New York Times, chances are that you've been corrupted by the process. Uh, we We should celebrate those journalists that got fired for their reporting, Unfortunately, we don't do that enough.
0: Well, uh, but that's what we're doing in this episode. And as part of our, you know, like high, like positive August. Well, trying to be a little bit po- positive, it's very difficult within within the Western bubble context, but at least here we have um, a, a journalist who reported on this critically and I mean publishing an, an article in, in the Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, at least in the world of international relations, that's a big deal. Um, so, at least there's something positive happening here, and maybe the bubble is bursting a little bit.
1: Maybe, and it should be pointed out, though, that this was mostly focused on something that happened 20 years ago, yeah, and, and 21, 22 years ago, and that makes it easier for Foreign Affairs to publish this, right? Uh, it would have been interesting to see that same article being written, for example, with respect to Ukraine and Russia at the moment, but Foreign Affairs wouldn't publish this because... Foreign Affairs still very much is in that bubble right now. 20 years from now, I look forward to an article in 2043 about how reporters on Ukraine and Russia were also silenced by the system. And some apology from Foreign Affairs and the New York Times coming out about that.
0: Well, I tried to end it on a positive note, um, but (laughs) unfortunately that's not uh, the world we live in. And this is it with uh, today's summer episode, which we will continue um, throughout August. And in September, we will start our third season. Uh, please continue to send us requests for topics you'd like to, for us to analyze then. Um, we will be grateful for your feedback to this format and for questions that you can submit to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. Next week, we will talk about the United Nations being asked by Muslim nations to report on Quran burnings in Sweden and Denmark. Thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.